I think debt is a very misused tool. Uh, too many people use debt to buy consumables. And one of the lessons that I taught my kids early on is to never borrow money for something that is going to decline in market value. How do you unlock your full potential of influence and create lasting change? I'm your co-host, Dave Donaldson. Along with your other co-host, Scott Young, welcome to the Influencers Podcast. Join us each week for inspirational stories and strategies from leaders, experts, and professionals around the globe. We want to see you get equipped and empowered to make an impact that resounds from your neighborhood to the nations. Well, you can't talk about influence without talking about stewardship of our resources, and we are honored to have one of the nation's top financial advisors, Gil Baumgarten. And Gil is, as I mentioned, one of the top financial advisors in the nation, founder and president of Segment Wealth Management, an RIA financial advisory firm. Since its inception in 2010, Segment Wealth Management has grown to a top 10 firm in Houston, as recognized by the Houston Business Journal, with over a billion dollars in client assets under advisement. Uh, Gil is also a nine-time recipient of the top 1,200 financial advisors. And I could go on and on, but in addition to that, I would say more importantly, uh, Gil uh, is attentive to his family, uh, friends, and, and colleague. Uh, he uh, is an outdoorsman, avid outdoorsman, travel the world hunting, fishing. Uh, he excels in sports. And Gil, you are your university's billiard champion. <laughs> yeah, that's wow. a very small, very small claim to fame, isn't it? <laughs> I'll tell yeah. you what. Uh, <laughs> what uh, I wish I had that claim to fame. That's well, a friend, of, well. A, a friend of mine says that being good at pool is a evidence of a misspent youth. <laughs> well, a hey, Gil, welcome to the Influence Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, you're a 36-year veteran of the security investment industry with 25 of those years working on Wall Street. Uh, tell us about your experience, the, the good, bad, the ugly, and why did you leave all of that to start your firm? Well, it is a great place to, uh, well, Wall Street and, and the brokerage firms are a great place to start a career. And, um, you know, they give you training and they give you an opportunity to earn a, a good living, but you have to play by their rules. And when you're young in the business, that's not too objectionable. But as you get older and more seasoned, figure out how things work and then figure out how clients and the advisor might in fact be disadvantaged by the system, I kept running into a conflict that I just couldn't reconcile. And after 25 years of trying to navigate that, I just decided I and my clients would be better off on a fiduciary platform uh, that doesn't have as many conflicts of interest as are present in the brokerage world. So that's what I chose to do in 2010. Wonderful. Well, I got to ask you this question. Uh, because you make the statement in your book, which we're going to talk about, the house always wins. And uh, I think many that are following the market today uh, probably feel that way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
but what do you mean by that? And can you give us a brief history of the stock market? Well, I'll give you an example of what I mean by the house always wins. So one of the things that I've always done is I have tried for kingdom purposes and for personal purposes as well. I've tried to give business away to parachurch ministries and churches in general. And so my firm currently manages money for several churches and uh, pseudo church organizations, and we don't charge for our services. When I was at the brokerage firms that I worked for and tried to do the same thing, they had a total prohibition on it. Now, I did it because one, I thought it was good for the community. And two, I did it because it puts me in a position to establish personal relationships with the board members of those nonprofits. So I did have an ulterior motive, but it was also motivated by wanting to do the right thing for my community as well. And the firms just don't have capacity for that. They would not let me run business for a parachurch organization and waive my firm's fees when I, in fact, was doing all the work and the firm would have relatively little cost in providing that. So anyhow, that's uh, that's what happens. And I just decided that it was a difficult situation that I, uh, you know, didn't didn't have to to deal with and could adapt to my situation differently if I was on an RIA platform, which RIA stands for Registered Investment Advisor, which in fact is a fully fiduciary type of platform. Now you have a new book called Foolish, How Investors Get Worked Up and Worked Over by the System, which is an inside look into the brokerage world. Uh, tell us about the book, and then I want us to drill down into some of these tips that you have for better investment. Um, well, the the book, the first half of the book is essentially how Wall Street operates, how the brokerage firms make their money, and in some of sort of exposing some of the dark corners that they try to keep hidden from the investing public. And investing public does not know that Wall Street makes money in ways other than just the commission that shows up on your confirmation of the trade you may have done. They cut side deals with providers who are also charging you fees and in many ways kick money back to the house, in this case, the big brokerage firms, uh, through side trading arrangements, payment for order flow, 12B1 fees that are embedded in mutual funds, uh, fees for the mutual funds to be evaluated, fees for the separate account managers that may also be running a mutual fund. There's all these cross currents that investors find themselves in and they have no idea which direction the fees are coming from or going to. And um, it's not as uh, forthright as I would feel would be due someone who is trusting their advisor to take care of their business for them. It's There's a little bit more buyer beware that needs to be present in the typical brokerage relationship with a client. And my book, the first half of it essentially explores what all those dark corners are. And then the back half of the book is essentially what self-harm tendencies, our fear and greed um, motivations put into the ecosystem of the thought process of the typical investor and how we generally do a poor job of navigating that. And I give tips on how to navigate it better. And one of those tips has to do with stewardship, which is in your introduction. So 
Interesting. Well, I, I, I know our listeners will love to read your book. And uh, I, I'm curious, you know, with Robinhood, you know, that platform and the adv- advent of uh, waiving trading fees, uh, the investment, you know, in uh, through Readit, you know, into stocks that are high, high risk. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, one of the things that uh, your listeners may be unaware of is that, you know, when a company like Fidelity or let's say Charles Schwab, um, because it's the these dark corners of making money aren't just prevalent in the uh, big traditional wirehouse firms like Merrill Lynch and UBS. Uh, a lot of the, these dark corners exist even on the um, low cost platforms like Schwab or Fidelity. But the free trading that got um, you know these uh, brokerage platforms like Robinhood off the ground means that they have to be making their money somewhere. And in the case of Charles Schwab, about two thirds of Schwab's annual revenue comes from returns that they earn on idle cash deposits inside of client accounts. So as a natural byproduct of leaving your money at a big brokerage firm, cash ends up on the balance sheet of that brokerage firm and those brokerage firms own banks. And those banks loan that money out, not for traditional things like auto uh, lending, but they do non-specific purpose loans, margin balances and the like, where the uh, difference between their cost of money, which is essentially zero in a money fund or cash balance versus the two or three percentage points they can earn on that by lending that money out, two-thirds of Schwab's revenue comes from interest on those idle credit balances. And another big portion of their revenue comes from payment for order flow, which is when you place a, a ticket to purchase a thousand shares of, you know, IBM, the a glimpse of that trade activity is shown to the marketplace to subscribers who have algorithms built to run out in front of your trade and capture a part of the spread that would be between the bid and the ask. It's much like the old school specialists that used to exist on the New York Stock Exchange, who's essentially been put out of business by digital trading. Uh, That intermediary, that middleman still exists and that generates revenue for those brokerage firms. And that's the reason why trading commissions have gone to zero. Now on the flip side, while I may criticize that as a little underhanded, it does, in fact, provide some good things for the marketplace, and that is tons of liquidity. Your ability to buy and sell in the marketplace is enhanced by that activity. Nobody is harmed greater than the bid or ask side than they would have traded uh, anyway. And you might remember back 20 or 30 years ago, the spread between the bid and the ask. If you were buying, it was $100 a share, and if you were selling, it was 99 and 7 eighths. Well, that is an eighth of a cent. I mean, an eighth of a dollar. That's 12 and a half cents as a spread between the bid and the ask. That has now collapsed down to a penny or less. So on the one hand, I don't think it's quite kosher for a middleman to be allowed into that spot. Uh, the middleman that used to exist took a whole lot more money from the client. So it comes as a mixed blessing. And that's where zero cost commissions essentially come into play. Man, fascinating. Can you give us uh, seven tips for better investment results? 
Well, one is to mind the fees and expenses that you pay and to dig that information out of the prospectuses and disclosure documents that you've got. I would also say you need to mind the taxes that you pay. You know, clients just don't seem to understand how uh, how taxes play into uh, realizing your gains. My firm manages money for unrealized gain. An unrealized gain is a profit that you've made in past years, but you've never sold the security and it just uh, accumulates to the future. That can be tax-free at the death of the first spouse and tax-free again at the death of the second spouse. And so Wall Street has a fantastic way of describing their trading methodologies, but trading just in and of itself creates friction to the process that harms long-term compounding for investors and investment advisors will fall or brokers also will fall back on cliches like, well, paying taxes is only proof that you're making money. Uh, well, the real proof that I'm making money is an increase in market value that I never have to pay taxes on. Um, so I think people also don't realize that dividend income is capped at half of a person's ordinary income tax rate. So can't be under current rule higher than 23.8%. And I don't care if you're in a 40% tax bracket. So um, I also would say for people to be careful of tax deferral schemes. So a tax deferral scheme would be an annuity or even an IRA. Uh, when you defer taxes with government sanctioning in an IRA, a 401k, or in a product like an annuity, what you're giving up is your ability to have capital gain taxation, which also is capped at a 23.8% tax rate. And what you have to take in return for your deferral is ordinary income taxation when you pull that money out. And so the government's no dummy. They give you deferral in your early years. And what you have to do is pay ordinary income tax on your later years. And it's not as powerful of a tool as most people understand it to be. I would also tell people another tip would be to make sure you're using a Roth IRA if you qualify for one and do the calculations to convert your existing IRA to a Roth. Um, another tip would be to minimize the money that you borrow. We don't like to see people have mortgages and then turn around and buy bonds in the bond market. You're borrowing money from yourself on one side and you're lending money to yourself on the other side. And the marketplace typically takes advantage of that and it makes it very difficult to make money in that type of a spread. So those are just typical tips that I would give people about minding their P's and Q's and following a philosophy that generates better returns and less risk for them. You know, that last one, I think is one that we overlook. So if you're investing, for example, in a bond, let's say you may get 1%, but yet you're paying 3 to 4% in interest for your mortgage. Yes, and mortgages aren't always fully deductible. And the interest that you might be earning on your bond might, in fact, be taxed as ordinary income. So on the one hand, yes, you might be uh, earning 1%, but you might also be giving nearly half of that return back to the government. And depending on your tax filing status, you might not, in fact, be able to deduct the interest that you're paying on your mortgage. So you can get caught in a triple whammy where you are paying more for your mortgage than you otherwise would earn. And then your taxes turn around and bite you in both directions. So uh, the one disadvantage to paying that mortgage off is that you lose some liquidity 
but many people just don't do the math. And, you know, there's a, also a self-deception that comes into this. It's easy to ignore the fact that I owe $500,000 on my house. And I love to look in my brokerage account online and see $500,000 in current value. But in fact, I'm other than the equity that I have in the home, I might in fact be bankrupt. If I owe $500,000 and I own $500,000, then the two you know, offset each other and essentially the balance is zero. And there's a certain amount of self-deception that comes into play because people don't look at their mortgage statement all the time and they love to look online at their brokerage statement. Uh, I, would, I, would, I think that should be cause for a little bit of scrutiny. And that is so well said. Uh, any other thoughts on debt? You know, the Bible, as we know, says a lot about debt and not being enslaved uh, to any person. You know, that, yeah, absolutely. Uh, talk with us about that. I think uh, debt is a very misused tool. Uh, too many people uh, use debt to buy consumables. And one of, the, one of the lessons that I taught my kids early on is to never borrow money for something that is going to decline in market value. That means if you're paying money, if you're borrowing money to go on a vacation, the memory is all you're going to have of it when it's all over with. If you're buying a car, you know, most cars will depreciate in value over time. Some people can't help but go into debt to buy a car. I just don't think it's wise. I think you're much more uh, wise to build up a credit balance that you use in advance, knowing that you're going to buy a car in the future. And so I, I don't object to mortgages on houses because houses typically appreciate in value and many times at a greater rate than the underlying interest rate on your mortgage. I can't believe that people will loan money for 30 years at 3% to buy an asset that in fact is liable to increase in market value, but the lender does not have any interest in the appreciation of that asset. And so I don't object to borrowing money to buy assets that are going to appreciate in value. I do object if they're going to depreciate in market value. You're just compounding the problem. So I think that's a good rule of thumb for your listeners. Well, we're in 2021, uh, the summer, and there's a lot of discussion right now about inflation whether it's transitory or here to stay for a while. Uh, any thoughts on inflation? And if indeed it is uh, growing and going to be with us for a while, how to prepare for that? Um, you know, I, I'm more in the transitory camp. I think that there is a lot of dislocations that occurred during COVID over the past year and a half. I look at uh, the reports that say, businesses are having a hard time finding employees. Uh, employees, would-be employees, are many times uh, sitting back on their laurels and collecting their unemployment check. They also benefit from the freeze on evictions. Uh, so there's been some demotivation from government programs that have given people incentives to not, not act responsibly in how they spend their time. And there's just a limit to how much the government can do. And there's a limit to the patience of the taxpayers who are otherwise out or working to earn a living and having to support other people who are choosing to not do so. So I think that once we reach the end of that limit and the government starts to take their foot off of the accelerator, uh, which is essentially free money, if you will, uh, I think that 
the supply chains are going to get back into sync and cars are going to stop being in short supply. The chips that are in them that are also in short supply. Uh, I give the example in several of my, I write a musings, a, a blog post that I put on my website and your listeners can subscribe there at segmentwm.com. Uh, that's, and must be my blog. I wrote about the plywood market, which got really disjointed back several months ago. And I was noticing that what would have been a $7 sheet of plywood at Home Depot was trading near $50 there for a period of time, simply because housing starts continued and repairs continued on, but yet there was just no inventory of plywood. Uh, well, lumber prices have fallen 68% in the past you know, 45 days or so. So those, those, ten, those things tend to correct themselves over time as economic incentives uh, kind of fall into place. I can imagine if I owned a plywood manufacturing place, when there's $50 sheets of plywood up for grabs, I'm going to be running my mill 24 hours a day, assuming that I can find employees. And I think that's the big if right there. Now, let's, uh, let's segue to generosity. Uh, we, we know uh, just based on God's word, you know, that stewardship, uh, good stewardship is certainly to meet our needs and needs of our family, uh, but we're also able to give out of abundance. I love the biblical description of the corners of the field where we all have a field. The Apostle Paul even says that in the New Testament and that we are to give the first fruits of that field uh, to our church as a tithe and then the corners to help the needy, the poor. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, as we've discussed, uh, we're consuming the corners. There's nothing left over uh, right. to even give. Yeah. And But the Bible is very clear. You know, if, if God can get it through you, he'll give it to you. And right. he will expand your field and your capacity to give and to serve. Uh, Gil, talk with us about generosity and some of the principles that you and your wife follow. Well, um, we do try to be generous, and we have a donor-advised fund, two of them, as a matter of fact, uh, for the, your listeners who are in, unfamiliar with that. You know, it's a place where you can park securities. That we, we like to use low-basis securities. So if I bought something for $2 a share, which I did recently, and it's trading at $6 a share, uh, we take those shares and we give them to our donor advised fund, and then we can spend a period of time uh, giving out the remainder of those proceeds uh, on whatever um, you know schedule we want to give it on. We have our church set up as a automatic debit to, against our donor advised fund, and so the donor advised fund essentially just allows you to keep your money in a locker. And the donor advised fund itself is a charity, and once you put money in it, you can't reclaim it. And therefore, when it ultimately goes to your church or any other uh, 501c3 qualifying charity, it just gets deducted from what you've already taken a tax deduction from. So those are fantastic tools to facilitate that. Um, we have talked to our kids from the beginning about uh, generosity and the importance of that and involving family members in your generosity plan also has other carry on effects. Our kids I don't think would say to you that they believe that they're going to get a lot of money from mom and dad. Uh, that's because we've told them that a large portion of our savings is going to end up going to charity. And it causes children, I think, to have a better, 
healthier view of their own responsibility in providing for themselves. Over the years, I've seen some family disasters occur from one or more of the offspring thinking that mom and dad or grandpa has made enough money to where I don't really even have to provide for myself. I'm going to be rich no matter what I do. I've seen that lead to drug abuse. I've seen it lead to illegal activity, just slothfulness. There's all kinds of things that that um, unnecessary sense of security can give to someone that I think is unhealthy. I've also seen it play out in poor risk-taking measures. Um, you know, the Bible says that you should make use of your talents and uh, a borrower nor lender be uh, is kind of the old wives tale. And um, using your talents typically means when, to me, I should be taking risk with my assets. I should be entrepreneurial. I should be starting business. I should be investing in the businesses of other people for profit. And I think capitalism is a very biblical uh, concept. Uh, with the responsibility to give to our churches, to take care of the widows and orphans, and and to be generous with our neighbors. And a generous giving program tends to make people very good risk takers. When we know that our money doesn't belong to us and we view it in a stewardship mindset, we're much more free with one with how we give it to other people, and we're free with the freer with the risks we apply to our money. Um, people who are savers who count every penny and have everything all allocated out in their mind um, typically don't want to expose a market variable where the stock market can come in in March of 2020 and swoop in and withdraw 30% of your money. And because we are self-protective, we tend to try to defend our money against such things only to our own detriment. If we are hoarding our money and have an unhealthy relationship with it, we will step right in in the midst of that 30% decline and try to take corrective action to hurt our, to help ourselves, and we end up hurting ourselves in the end. The two days that followed that March 23rd bottom of uh, last year saw about a 20% rec return occur in less than 48 hours. So anybody who took corrective action to try to protect their money in March of last year in the free fall really did themselves a ton of harm. And the stock market since then has doubled in market value. So it's that protection that really puts people. And in the book, we talk about this as the um, scarcity versus the abundance mindset and a person who views scarcity. And it's not a matter of how much money's involved. We've seen clients with very large pools of assets still view their situation as scarce. And we have seen more modest investors view their situation as abundant. And that abundance mindset is the key to taking good, healthy risks with your money and being a patient long-term investor to allow things to percolate along. It just so happens that that uh, also goes very well hand in hand with a stewardship mindset and the ability and willingness to give freely of our resources. Well, that's so good. I love what Warren Buffett uh, said about giving to his kids, uh, leave the children enough so that they can do anything, but not enough that they can do nothing. That's exactly right. That's very, that's very wise. I have, I have a question with, uh, for you, though, about uh, donor advised funds, and I think it's a wonderful tool, uh, and you mentioned that it's a locker uh, that can, where you're storing uh, funds that you can in turn donate, and I 
if I'm uh, reading correctly, there's right now well over $150 billion of funds that are in that donor advised funds. Uh, the challenge is it, does government just mandate that you give away 5% a year of that? No, that's, that's what would it be in a normal foundation. Okay. Uh, typical rules would be that you have to recycle the money that you leave in there once every seven years. And so, but, but not all donor advised funds operate that way. But I, I think that that is a rule that I recall from past dealings that every seven years you have to recycle the money. Uh, so it's not something you would want to put in there and leave for a long time, but uh, it's a very interesting tool for somebody who might be selling a ranch or selling a business and have a very large capital gain that they're anticipating. Uh, and you could fund your donor advice fund with a percentage of that. We have a client who sold a, a warehouse back two or three years ago, and he gave a 9% interest in the sale to a donor advised fund, and he avoided the capital gains tax on the sale of that property. And then he get, was able to take a full tax deduction for the full fair market value of the 9% interest he had given away. Not all donor advised funds can accept illiquid gifts like that, but many of them can. So uh, an interest in a business, a private interest in a business would be another thing. If you own a large manufacturing business and have a thousand employees and you're selling the company to a competitor, you can give up a minority interest in that right before the sale and avoid the capital gains tax that you otherwise would have endured in addition to being able to take a tax deduction for the full fair market value of the gift of the business into the donor advice fund. It's essentially a proxy for your own personal foundation, which is much more cumbersome uh, to transact business in and uh, to monitor and to meet all the government rules for a private foundation. Well, DAFs are wonderful if yes, they're they are. used as a tool. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think far too many people, uh, they have put a lock on that locker. <laughs> yeah. I've heard it said that all the money that uh, churches need in the country is is available. It's just sitting in your account. So, uh, you know, the people have to be more proactive about giving their money away. Uh, Gil, this has been wonderful. I'd love to chat with you more, but I want to ask you, how do we get a copy of your book? Uh, you can buy it on Amazon. It's called Foolish, and the subtitle is How Investors Get Worked Up and Worked Over by the System. Uh, so that it's going to be on Audible here in the next 60 days or so, and there's an audio version coming to Amazon also. It's available in hardback and paperback right now on Amazon. It made bestseller status the first uh month that it was on there. So I would encourage your uh, listeners to go check that out. They can also subscribe to my free blog uh, at segmentwm.com forward slash blog. Uh, we post uh, about once every two weeks, we write an article about all these things that we're talking about and how it works and give people some things to think about and hopefully make them a better investor. Wonderful. Uh, how do we uh, contact your company? If we're interested in, for example, setting up a DAF. Uh, Segment Wealth Management is the name of my firm. Segmentwm.com, S-E-G-M-E-N-T-W-M.com. All of our contact info can be found there. You can People can also go to my Gil Baumgarten website. Gil is spelled with one L. So G-I-L-B-A-U-M-G-A-R-T-E-N.com. 
I'm an artist and do some sculpture and paintings and uh, and speaking and other things that aren't appropriate to put on my company website. They can go there and find out more about uh, how I do things. I'll tell you, you are multi-talented to say the least. And Thank you. Gail, we're so grateful that you joined us today on the Influencers Podcast. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Influencers Podcast on the Charisma Podcast Network. If you enjoy our content, we would love for you to subscribe and have the opportunity to tune in to future podcasts. You can also follow us at the Influencers Podcast Official on all social media channels to stay up to date, hear more inspiring content, and to unlock your full potential as an influencer. Remember folks, use your influence to move people closer to Jesus and his mission.